The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with Larry Allen, one of the uh, uh, the Marvel superheroes here to defend the small business universe in GovCon. Uh, we are going to be discussing a number of moves from GSA and OMB to radically reduce the number of smalls being able to do business with the government. Larry, welcome to the show. Mark, thanks for having me back. I'm looking forward to it. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't know that it's conscious, but I don't know that it's not conscious. But the the upshot of category management, of driving the e-commerce platform is going to have the same effect, from my perspective, that the strategic sourcing did on Schedule 75 when it basically killed 400 companies. Mark, I think there's certainly the potential there for that. Uh, as we look at category management and choosing best-in-class contracts, you and I have spoken a little bit about that before. Inevitably, if you're trimming the number of contract vehicles, which is what best-in-class contracting is at its core, you're going to be trimming the number of companies that are on those contracts, and small businesses are definitely a part of that. Uh, indeed, we have one company that uh, was recently in the news about uh, dying on the hill of small business uh, for one of the uh, GSA contract vehicles that's coming out, the 2GIT contract. This mark is the contract vehicle that is meant to replace the Air Force NetSense um, multiple award contract. And the thing that really strikes me about this, and was anybody paying attention is that NetSense had three or four categories that were specifically set aside for small businesses. And those categories alone over the last three years have averaged about a billion and a half dollars a year for small businesses. And when you look at the full and open competition on NetSense, Mark, probably a little bit more than that for small business. 2GIT, as currently crafted, would not have any small business set-aside categories. Uh, making it the all full and open competition. And while we know that small businesses can and do compete effectively against larger companies, uh, it does set kind of a questionable precedent, I think, to take away uh, a contract that has specific parts of it set aside for small business, obviously competing effectively, meeting the needs of Air Force customers, and replacing it with a comp- uh, contract that would not have any uh, of those types of protections. Yeah, we're, we're talking about an article that was posted by Jason Miller here on Federal News Network uh, about uh, Rick Vogel and his company. And uh, Rick and I started this discussion on LinkedIn eight years ago. It's a, a, a hard thing for, for companies that have worked for years and years to get into this only to be shut out of the game. And that was the upshot of Schedule 75 with the first major foray into strategic sourcing. It really was. And what we're talking about here is the GSA Schedule 75 
was closed down to new offers, and they rolled out the, originally what was the OS2 uh, strategic sourcing initiative. And what happened was all these companies that had been serving the government market and government customers well went out of business, plain and simple. And there were you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of jobs lost across the country when GSA went to that uh, OS2 format. And a number of companies, Mark, some of them were fortunate enough to stay alive, but they really had to scramble, reinvent themselves, go into debt. None of that was healthy. And I think there's a, a real concern that you could have the same type of outcome here. And of course, in the end, strategic sourcing really hasn't generated anything like the amount of sales, uh, particularly for the small businesses that survived, that the Schedule 75 uh, has always done, Mark. Well, they're not exactly comparable, they're pretty darn close. And it's clear that federal agency customers prefer, generally speaking, the flexibility of a schedule contract because that enables them to tailor the solution to meet their own specific needs rather than a one-size-fits-all OS, now we're talking about OS4 contract uh, that purports to serve government agencies across the full spectrum. It does business, but not as much uh, business as the pain it's worth and certainly not as much business as the Schedule 75 does. It'll be interesting to see what happens now as this type of approach goes either wittingly or unwittingly into the world of IT. Okay. Um, to further that, the, uh, the whole category management move is pushing – a lot of business to the best-in-class contracts. And there's a uh, Bloomberg report that just came out that says uh, agencies spent about $18.5 billion on IT through the best-in-class contracts in FY18, almost 30% of the government-wide IT spending. Uh, that's BGov analysis. So, I mean, it, it's already significant. It's already significant, Mark. And the thing that really struck me about the BGov report is that it was based on data that came out well before the most recent OMB memo to agencies that said, we really mean it when we say you ought to buy through best-in-class contract vehicles. That was a very strong reinforcement. And I would expect that that almost 30% number would certainly go up. It will go up, I think, detectably during the uh, end of this fiscal year. It'll be interesting to see what measurements show uh, for how much it went up, and it potentially will go up in FY20 as well. Look, best-in-class contracting is never going to catch the entire market. Uh, there are always going to be customers out there that are driven more by mission than by acquisition method, and that's not a bad thing. However, Mark, that's cold comfort to companies that are left by the roadside, uh, the ones that uh, were on non-best-in-class contract vehicles or could not get access to best-in-class contract vehicles and find that the business that they won – uh, through contract vehicles that had been previously de uh, designated to be competitively bid and awarded, well, those are no longer up to snuff. Okay. I mean, you and I have been predicting the uptick 
in GWAX and IDIQ, some specific ones anyway, for a couple of years now. Well, certainly if you look at what happens uh, in the third and fourth quarter of each fiscal year, Mark, you see uh, a substantial uptick in the use of MAC and GWAC contracts. That's not going to slow down. How much it intensifies because of the best-in-class memoranda coming out of OMB remains to be seen, but it certainly adds a couple of logs on a fire that's already well underway. And I think what we're going to see here is that even within the realm of GWAC contracts, it's going to be the ones that are designated BIC. And what does that mean? And who gets to say? We've talked about that here before. And one of the things I think it's important to point out is, look, right now, the GSA schedules program, the largest single acquisition method in this part of the government world, does not in and of itself have a programmatic BIC designation. Does that matter? Who will it matter to? Who won't it matter to? And how could that disrupt government buying moving forward? All right, we're going to take our first break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Larry and I will return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm here with Larry Allen. You can find Larry at Allen, A L L E N, federal.com. And I should have introduced you. You're the president of Allen Federal with Partners. With all the with all the rights and uh, appurtenances there too. Yeah, there you go. Which means you clean your own office too. That's uh, what that means. <laughs> um, OMB is complicit in this as well. So this reeks of collusion to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly, Mark GSA's directives. What we were talking about in the first segment are uh, coming at uh, the behest of the Office of Management and Budget. And that's not entirely surprising. Throughout acquisition history, uh, the Office of Management and Budget has kind of relied on GSA to be the lead implementation agency for many of its policies, lacking as it does its own foot soldiers. And what we're really talking about here, we talked in that first segment about category management. And I want to make it clear to your listeners that even when we're talking about best-in-class contracting and category management, Mark, it's not an either-or situation for federal agencies. In fact, OMB has laid out four separate tiers of acquisition methods that agencies are supposed to follow. The first is unmanaged spend. Typically, I guess they have in mind there that that would be spending made up to the micro-purchase threshold, using a lot of purchase cards. Tier two would be agency-wide managed spend, uh, working hand-in-hand with certain mandatory use policies, whether that would be mandatory sources like Ability One or Federal Prison Industries or merely a contract that an agency designates as mandatory, the policy doesn't say. Tier two takes it up another level. It's more of a managed spend approach, uh, spending that's going through a government-wide or multi-agency contract that has strong management. And then, of course, the NAE plus ultra would be tier three, which would be the best-in-class contracts, government-wide contracts or agency-wide contracts that have been certified as offering best pricing in terms. And, of course, it's the emphasis on best pricing that I think has a lot of people in industry and, frankly, in government concerned. If you're talking about best, best does not always equate with cheapest. You think about the 
spending habits that we have in our own lives, whether for our own businesses or our personal lives, uh, sometimes we make the best value determination that we, quote, can't afford to buy cheap, end quote. And I think that that's uh, something that OMB would probably uh, do well to consider here. But in any event, the basic point, Mark, is that even in this world of category management and best-in-class contracting, there's a hierarchy of needs, a hierarchy of acquisition methods that federal agencies are supposed to follow. And I assure most of your listeners that a lot of federal people may not understand that, so it's incumbent upon you as the contractor to work with them to make sure they do. Okay. So um, you, you mentioned uh, uh, several things in there, not the least of which was the micro-purchase threshold. And GSA has requested uh, as part of its e-commerce plan, the Amazon plan, if you will. <laughs> um, well, that's how people are talking about it. But they've requested the uh, micro purchase left uh, threshold to go from ten thousand to twenty five thousand, and only in the case of quote authorized venues. Those would be purchases that would go through GSA's e-commerce platform. Mark, this is a recent GSA request to Congress. It comes on the heels of the request they made last year for a broader across-the-board increase in the micro-purchase threshold up to $25,000. As you pointed out, that would more than double the existing $10,000 level. This time around, though, GSA is telling Congress, look, we really need this higher dollar level to prove the concept of the e-commerce platform that you, Congress, directed us to set up. However, we understand that you don't want to give everybody in government the higher micro-purchase threshold level. So let's just limit it to purchases that are made through our GSA-managed e-commerce portal system. You aren't talking about the one that's in place now that really doesn't work, are you? No, this is not GSA Advantage. This would be the commercial e-commerce platform, whether it's awarded to Amazon or Staples or whoever else it might be awarded to. Um, we don't know yet, uh, but uh, it would be purchases that are made through that platform. Now, what Congress does with this, I'm not sure, but clearly GSA is keying on the ability to have that higher level so that they can actually collect some data and be able to definitively tell what works and what doesn't as they contract with commercial e-commerce providers. Well, what works and what doesn't in what sense? Purely a, a money sense, or are they going to uh, go back to very uh, numerous public calls about set-aside quotas uh, and small business goals in government? Well, that's the great irony, Mark. We were just talking about what constitutes best-in-class, and it says right there in the memo from OMB, price is a significant defining characteristic, yet preliminary studies done uh, but between prices on GSA Advantage and prices that go through commercial e-commerce platforms show that the pricing on GSA Advantage is usually most most frequently better. Yeah, just and, not as easy to use. Right, it's not just not as easy to use. However, <clears throat> the pricing is better. So it, what trade-off is Congress and the administration willing to have for some degree of ease of use if what we're talking about is higher pricing 
going through these platforms. Uh, there's a lot of data analysis that can be done here, too. That's a perceived good. But uh, you also mentioned mandatory sources. And in the same report that we just talked about where GSA asked for the higher micro-purchase threshold, they talk a little bit about how they're going to address mandatory sources. Because keep in mind, there's no exemption for mandatory source use today for any micro-purchase. So if you're buying something up to $10,000 today, you're supposed to use the mandatory source first, whether it's Prison Industries or Ability One. GSA, however, Mark, says merely that they are going to require e-commerce providers to give a preference, a higher posting on the page, if you will, to mandatory source items. They do not call explicitly for a block and ship strategy, which I think is definitely going to invite incoming fire from the Ability One community, just to name one. I was uh, I spoke at a uh, veterans conference, uh, a monthly meeting actually, about four months ago. Scott Denniston's group um, over at the Key Bridge Marriott, which sadly is apparently going away. It's been there like forever. Well, they've been uh, talking about it. I don't know. We'll see. Well, yeah. if, they, if they do, you and I will have to be there for the party. <laughs> that, well, there's that. Because um, Lord knows how many times collectively we've spoken there. Um, but Scott, at, uh, when we were talking about this this e-commerce platform, told me that the, the Veterans Consortium has one that they're offering. So there is, you know, this small business potential angle here. Uh, and they're probably not the only one. Well, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, there are certainly going to be a lot of people who line up, Mark, to participate in the e-commerce project. Uh, anytime that you have a new acquisition method that um, will purport to grow and make it easy to use and federal agencies will come to it because it's easy to use and also therefore may siphon away business from existing portals and, and acquisition methods, you're going to have people beat a path to that new acquisition doorway. So whether it's veteran-owned or small business or whoever else, I would expect there to be a high amount of interest, and in, uh, indeed there will be. The thing that is kind of interesting is in the GSA report, they're talking about starting with an e-marketplace pilot. So GSA has identified three different e-commerce transaction methods in the commercial marketplace. Like e One is e-procurement. One is the e-marketplace. There's a third that is uh, a, a connector, if you will. I don't know the exact term, but it's a uh, an agent, an electronic agent sort of setup. Yet GSA really just wants to start with that e-marketplace model to do their proof of concept. And I would guess that that uh, proof of concept would be in place for a year or two before they would turn to one of the other types of models. So that kind of begs the question, uh, if the veterans group doesn't meet the e-commerce definition uh, or the e-marketplace definition, uh, would they be able to participate in the pilot? My guess is that GSA will probably only do a handful of awards for that pilot. They didn't say in their report that they were going to do only one. 
uh, and they've been talking all along. Well, that would about, be the Jedi effect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, drawing protests, we'd never get the procurement off the ground. But they never said that they were going to do just one. And in fact, in all the discussions they've had, they've said they're going to do multiple awards for the project generally. So I would think that would mean multiple awards here. But in the initial phase, it's only going to be awards to companies that meet that e-marketplace designation. Okay. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Larry and I shall return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm here with Larry Allen today uh, of Allen Federal, and you can find Larry on LinkedIn, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes too, and uh, at allenfederal.com. Uh, Larry, the uh, the GSA, I mean, the e-commerce thing is is part of a broader strategy at GSA that they're calling the Federal Marketplace Strategy. And it breaks down basically into four categories. So let's uh, start with that. And, and you know, um, this, this is an informational one. If you look up uh, Federal Marketplace Strategy, you should go to the, to the uh, page on GSA or go to gsa.gov and type in Federal Marketplace Strategy and you can find the, uh, the stuff we're going to talk about now. So the, the first thing is the uh, uh, amending of the schedules, right? We're talking about amending the <clears throat> schedules program, Mark. We're talking about schedules consolidation. That's a key part of the uh, Federal Marketplace Strategy. At its widest point, Mark, the Federal Marketplace Strategy is an attempt by GSA to make it easier for federal customers to look at and have access to all of GSA's acquisition options. So if you're a government buyer who's looking for workstations, uh, you could come to the Federal Marketplace Strategy and you would see aligned all of GSA's acquisition methods through which you could access workstations, whether they're contracts like the schedules or Alliant, whether they're blanket purchase agreements like the Advantage Select program or whatever they are, this would be all part of a unified federal marketplace strategy, a landing pad that uh, company that uh, buyers rather could come into and, and look at. But a part of this is GSA wants to consolidate the schedules program. We've talked a little bit about schedules consolidation uh, before. Uh, they are planning to try to get uh, some part of this done by the end of the fiscal year. The first thing they're going to try to do is standardize the terms and conditions, Mark. There are dozens of different contract clauses that govern today's schedule contracts, and GSA wants to try to bring some standardization in. On its surface, I think that's a good thing. However, if you're a contractor and you've negotiated special terms and conditions that your company has to live with and wants to live with, you're going to want to make sure that the standardization does not do away with those uh, special terms that are important to your firm's contract management. Okay. I heard you say uh, the names of several GSA vehicles. Is it safe to assume that non-GSA vehicles like SOUP uh, CIOSP3, CIOCS will not be part of this. I don't think they're going to be part of this. These are going to be GSA's programs and contract vehicles, and they have a lot of them. But it's not just the multiple award schedules program, although that's one part of it. 
it's going to be the federal marketplace strategy talks about the commercial e-commerce platform uh, that you and I spoke about in the last segment on the show today. Uh, so it's going to be the commercial e-commerce platform is going to be a key part of this. One of the things that GSA has already gotten off the ground and they're very excited about, Mark, is their internal contract writing system. Uh, this was something that Alan Thomas, the commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service, has wanted to do pretty much since day one of coming into GSA, wanted to update and uh, standardize GSA's contract writing system. Uh, federal customers may not uh, so much recognize the change, but it's going to be a big deal for contractors if it you know, works correctly. You and I both know that contracting officers at GSA and other agencies, not to just pick on GSA, uh, sometimes will do contracting by Xerox machine. That is, they will cut and paste, cut and paste, take the previous solicitation, the previous RFP, and not put a it lot to, of editing, right, and put it out again, regardless of whether or not the actual terms and conditions have changed. And oftentimes they have. This is my note to contractors listening today. Make sure that you look at your contract modifications to ensure that the terms and conditions didn't change. Uh, absent a unified, consistent, updated contract writing system, my experience shows me that terms and conditions do change, not infrequently when you do a modification. And you could end up with, let's say a different basis of award customer for your schedule contract compliance than you thought you had. Uh, so it's really important to look at that. So the contract writing system may not get a lot of headlines outside of this part of the market, but it does, I think, have a significant uh, potential for a positive impact. Uh, and then the last part of the act was federal marketplace strategy for GSA would be uh, catalog management. This would be GSA's ability to update things like GSA Advantage. And we all know that Advantage really needs to be updated. Uh, we've talked about, we talked previously about the outdated interface, the fact that it's not as easy to use as the current commercial marketplace uh, formats. Uh, so catalog management is going to be an important part of that for GSA. And remember, that this transcends the schedules program. It gets into a lot of things that are in GSA's requisition channel that used to be called global supply. It used to be called depots before that, Mark. Right. So, yeah, I, I remember the, uh, uh, the, the depots. They didn't get into the, uh, uh, the nitty gritty as far as the uh, purchase card goes in this, but I, I would strongly suggest to everyone Who's uh, who listens to this? To go to gsa.gov again. Look up the federal marketplace strategy uh, in the search box, and uh, and go to this page and understand what GSA is trying to do. I asked uh, a couple of the people who uh, from GSA who who pointed me in this direction uh, if there was going to be industry feedback and. They tell me there's going to be, but it's important to go to the interact for each of these four categories to get your uh, feedback noticed and hopefully taken and seriously. And to know, what, know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you got to know what's going on, hopefully, to comment. But, you know, the, 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 this whole thing goes back uh, to 
in, in my mind, the whole category management thing uh, where they identified, and this, this is the part that still confuses me a little bit. They identified uh, 19 spend categories according to uh, product service codes, and then they reduced it to 10. Well, it, it still seems like there's some potential for uh, square peg round hold. Why did they have to go to 10? Was that their max number? Why couldn't they do 19? It's still a lot less than the number of schedules currently. Uh, it is. And the answer is, I'm not sure why 10. I don't know that there's anything magical about 10 or 19. And it's kind of interesting to see this as GSA consolidates with the aim of getting the schedules program down to one schedule. Uh, further, they're also talking about setting up the schedules program, not by PSCs, but by NAICS codes. So That's a little on the broad side, don't you think? Well, yes, it's on the broad, it's on the broad side, but it would be in keeping with going to 10 product service codes. Uh, and I think what the agency is saying here is modern technology should be able to provide a searchable solution for buyers that aren't sure about where the solution is at GSA that they're looking for. But I can see where oversimplification could make it a little bit more difficult for people to find things. Uh, ironically, last time GSA looked at schedules consolidation itself, not exactly this, but close, uh, one of the things that small businesses were concerned about was the ability to be found. Uh, that's not, I haven't heard so much about that this time around, but if you're talking about consolidating uh, around different product service codes uh, and uh, and going to NAICS codes, you could, as a small business, find that you're not always small, depending on which one you now fall in. Yeah, and, and it's uh, not simply a matter of being found. Uh, go back to Jason Miller's article at Federal News Network. It may be a matter of not being there. Right, not being there, uh, and you you find that you're in, a, in another category where you uh, are not with your competitors, uh, which could be a problem if the buyer is looking at where your competitors are and they don't see you. Uh, this has been a, a problem with GSA classifications previously, uh, so we'll have to watch that. In fact, I was looking earlier today uh, at my elected officials, and I kind of know who my elected officials are, but it turns out I live within two blocks of the boundary level for two different legislative districts. Uh, so I could not be found either, or my vote might not count. So you might want to make sure that you're making, that you can be found as your contractor so that your business counts. Well, there you go. Um, that, <laughs> that could be a little important coming up. Um, we're going to take our last break here. We'll be back. After this, you're listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Back with Larry in a minute. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm here with Larry Allen of Allen Federal. You can find Larry on LinkedIn, which we will talk about in a minute, and at allenfederal.com, A L L E N federal.com. Larry, DOD has a. Uh, is, is starting to share its negotiation uh, platform information with industry. What's this about? Mark, this is kind of a neat thing. DOD actually put out there and industry eventually found its negotiation guidance that 
it gives to its own DOD contracting officials. And it's right there now available in the DOD uh, website. If you look at DOD acquisition, the top 10 things that contracting officers and contract specialists at DOD should be aware of when they're negotiating with industry. It's a little bit like the other team giving you their negotiation playbook ahead of time, but it's really useful if you're a contractor because now you can have a meeting of the minds. And one of the things that I've been telling my clients, Mark, is irrespective of whether or not you're doing business with DOD, these are negotiation strategies that you can be sure most civilian agencies use as well. So there's really a lot of government-wide applicability here. Now, some of the methods, some of the recommendations seem like they're kind of common sense, like be prepared and give yourself room to compromise, although you and I both know that sometimes there are contracting officers that don't do that. Uh, but there are other things that are really uh, key, too, and they, they aren't as obvious. Things like say it right. Look, there are a lot of people in Washington, D.C., and I kind of include myself in this category, to be fair, who like to speak in nuanced tones. Uh, there are people you can make an argument without being uh, offensive to people. You can get your point across in a nuanced way, which really easily works really, really well if you're up on Capitol Hill, you're trying to shape an agency policy. But when you're negotiating a contract, Mark, nuance doesn't work. You need to be able to be direct. The words should say what they mean, and you and the person sitting across the table from you should be in agreement on what the words mean. You shouldn't have a lot of gray area in your contract, even though you as a contractor might think that works for you. It works for you right up until the day when DCA knocks on your door, and then it doesn't. Then you have to call outside counsel, people who charge more than you and I do for their services. Uh, the other thing that I think is probably <coughs> interesting in this top 10 is using the power of patience. Silence can be golden when you're negotiating a contract. How many times have you been at a car dealership where the car salesman says, hey, that's an interesting offer, but I've got to go check with my manager. And they leave you there, and you know they're talking about the Redskins or the Nationals, depending on the time of year. They're not talking for more than 30 seconds about the offer that you've just made. If but at gonna, all, yeah. But they're going to sit there and make you sweat it out. This is the power of patience. And one of the things I've learned from contracting officers is that not saying anything and letting the other side figure out why you're not saying anything can be very beneficial when you're in a negotiation setting. And sure enough, DOD thought the power of patience was important enough to put it there in their top 10. Uh, so whether you're an experienced negotiator or a newbie, I, Mark, I think these DOD rules are must-reads. Again, they have a lot of applicability not just in DOD but in civilian agencies. Okay. So I should shut up sometimes. <laughs> well, I think sometimes it's useful to, to, to not be the first person to jump into a void. Uh, and you look, how many times have you thought, boy, if I only knew what the other side was thinking, if I only knew uh, what their priorities were, I'm sure I could get to a deal today. Well, now uh, we know that. DOD has put its top 10 out. And also, similar to that, 
How many times have you been in a negotiation where it's obvious that you are talking past the contracting officer? He or she has is coming not from a, diff, a different place, but from a different planet from the one you're talking on. And that's wasting everybody's time and getting both you and that contracting officer frustrated. Putting guidance like this out and making it available for everybody to read helps reduce that. And to the point that it does that, Mark, it should drive better negotiations, faster contract awards, and better overall acquisition outcomes. Cool. We're going to wrap up this part and talk about uh, a month ago, Larry and I uh, agreed that he was going to be kind of a uh, test case for me. I uh, was going to do some coaching with him on LinkedIn. We haven't had active sessions. We we did one, and I sent you some suggestions. So so talk a little bit about your your LinkedIn experience over the last month, and then I'll share some of the stats that I've gleaned. Well, Mark, my LinkedIn experience uh, under your guidance uh, has been extremely positive. I've gotten a lot more recognition from people in the industry, uh, people who I haven't heard from in a little while. Uh, I'm now hearing back from. Uh, it all depends on where you post and just not posting things on your own LinkedIn page. But as you taught me, uh, posting in the groups that you belong to now you certainly don't want to wear out your welcome by posting in groups every day. But when you've got something to say, uh, it's good to be able to make sure that people see what you're saying. Uh, so that's been very positive. Get more views, people who re-remember what I'm up to and what I'm all about. Uh, it's So it's been a, a very good experience. I've got a better page now. It looks more professional. Uh, I'm still working on some of the graphics. Graphics, not my strongest suit, but we're getting there. That's why we both have Web Divas. So. <laughs> That's exactly right. And I've got my web person working on part of that right now. Uh, so, But it's a more uh, crisp-looking page. It's a better presentation of what I want to be uh, professionally. And as I said, I'm getting more contacts uh, than I was previously. Yeah, and you know your, your newsletter, The Week Ahead, comes out Mondays. And you, you have usually three items in there that are worth posting somewhere, but you belong to a number of groups. So each of those doesn't have to go in every group. Your item on the micro-purchase uh, uh, threshold this week could go into any of the schedule groups, number one, uh, Peter Weischer's group, GSA and VA schedules especially, uh, but there's a couple of other, you know, VA uh, or the the schedules groups out there as well. So selectively planning it in there, the activity that you've uh, you've started to to uh, uh, engage in is is starting to show up too. So uh, I don't I didn't take a snapshot of this last time, but I have to believe you have more followers now. So. Uh, I know your social selling index, which is a LinkedIn indicator of your activity on LinkedIn, is up 32%. How about that? Um, that that's pretty darn cool. Uh, your profile views are up about 12%. Um, and your article views are picking up as well. So uh, I think one of the things uh, that, that you did, uh, especially to enhance your profile, was fill in that, that blue dot background thing <laughs> with the Allen Federal logo. 
Now, you know, at, at bare minimum, your company logo should be up there. And that's a great way to brand yourself, to remind people that it's not just any Larry Allen. It's that Larry Allen. <laughs> so the uh, uh, I'll, I'll give you one, uh, one piece of advice that we'll put on air here. Uh, I noticed that you had, because uh, uh, you sent me a screenshot, you had like 62 notifications. Okay. <laughs> these, these are things like people changing jobs, people's birthdays, people posting something somewhere. I acknowledge each and every one of those for the simple reason that it keeps me on those radars. And the trigger here is you said more people were starting to look back at your profile, right? Yes. So um, the way to, and, and this takes like five minutes a day, but rather than just click the congrats on the new job, I always at least plug in their first name if it's somebody I suspect I need to influence more, I look at their profile, I look at their company, and I see who else is there. So an executive at one company, uh, uh, a new VP uh, at a company, I knew their marketing person really well. Gee, big surprise, right? <laughs> so I say, hey, congrats on the new gig. Please tell Jessica I said hello. So now I didn't just say hello to her. She knows I know their marketing person. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of not embedded in the company, but I'm known in the company. So little things like that will definitely, and, and I got a response for that too. Going to see her at lunch, we'll tell her. So little things like that can really raise you on the radar. These are social selling techniques. They aren't hard selling, but they're designed to keep you on the radar and make it easier to get through when you want five minutes of phone time or a short meeting when you're in the vicinity. That's, I think that's an excellent suggestion. Uh, I, you're right. It only takes a few minutes, and if you let them back up, it seems daunting, but not a lot. Uh, it's not really so, and I think uh, it's time well spent. Yeah, and you're going to see people that you really want to reach out to. Well, and this gets to the core of what we talked about a lot, whether it's here or elsewhere, is that the business that we're in is relationship-driven business. Yep. And even though there are a lot of rules and regulations around it, uh, it's people who you trust, people who you know, and acknowledging things like birthdays and things like that is a, is a part of that. It is. It is. You know, and if, if you're uh, – I don't mean to put it this way, but I will. If you're silly enough to put your your birthday up there, <laughs> I'm definitely going to say happy birthday. Um, I'm not putting my birthday up there. Uh, certainly not the year anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> Larry, thanks for coming in, man. I really appreciate it. Mark, thank you. I appreciate it and look forward to it. It's always fun. And if you couldn't glean from that last couple of minutes, I advise a lot of companies and individuals on building out that LinkedIn presence, building a subject matter expert platform, which Larry has, uh, and getting, getting noticed for it, staying on that radar. So if this is of interest to you, drop me a line, mark at federaldirect.net or markamtower at gmail, either way. And thank you very much for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.
E-commerce merchants, does consistent monthly growth while hitting ROI goals sound good? Here at AdRoll, our customers constantly let us know it feels good. AdRoll helps you attract new customers and bring shoppers back to finish the sale. Integrate your e-commerce store with AdRoll and manage display, social media, and native advertising all in one place. Sounds good, right? See the difference. Visit AdRoll.com to get started today. Your story. It lives in River City. Where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel. Where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another. Where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.